This week on Strange Religion, we talk about vampires. I'm Christopher Brenna. I'm Andrew Kushman. And this is Strange Religion. So, I like a lot of nerdy stuff. You know this, Christopher. Of course. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. A lot of pulpy stuff. A lot of, not so much horror. I mean, I like horror movies and whatnot. More of a science fiction and fantasy guy. But I've always liked vampire stories, vampire movies, vampire TV shows. But those are also the shows or movies I hate the most. For instance, I really liked True Blood. Uh, But I hated... And I didn't even really try to watch or read the Twilight books. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I I get you. I understand. I will confess that I did read them. I read all of them. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. They were horrible. <laughs> well, why did you keep going? Well, I think... You might understand this. Maybe you won't. I'm willing to tolerate a really, really low quality of story. I'm also really willing to tolerate a ton of douchebaggery, let's call it. Yeah. Uh, If it's vampire related. I love vampire stuff. Okay. And I will watch a super terrible B-movie. Not even like the classic B-movie like you know, Blackula and, and all of the, the old seventies movies where you can really, you know, it's like you can get drunk and watch those and it's funny and kind of ironic and also kind of hipster kind of thing to do. I watch the ones that are from like 2013, you know, the one that was like straight to straight to video. Yeah. So my standards go way, way, way down when it comes to a vampire flick. I I can put up with lots of pulpy stuff, but my standards don't go that far down. Now I did, on on a similar event, I did read all the Left Behind novels when I was in high school. Really? But I did that for a girl. And actually that that did not turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out, which was not very surprising in retrospect. Well, man, those are dense. That's commitment. She must have been really, really attractive. I mean, I don't want to get into it. All right, <laughs> it fair enough. Fair it didn't enough. go the way I wanted it to go. But uh, <laughs> but I read all those damn books. But with vampires, oh, here's the thing. <clears throat> you need to have blood. You need to have sex. Or rather, just violence and sex. Like, that's what makes it a vampire book. And if it doesn't have those things, like, I don't have enough interest in it. Well, so True Blood is kind of a classic, then. Oh, well, yeah, it's everything. It's over-the-top blood, over-the-top sex. But that's why I hate Twilight. Like not much blood or sex. No sex, right? That's the whole point. Lots of sexual tension. Tons of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And then when the sex actually does happen, it's horrifying. <laughs> well, that'd be okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I guess everything that vampires are supposed to do is, is horrifying. And I, and I get that. I really, for me, I, I loved True Blood and I watched through all of it. Uh, twice. Um, but I actually, uh, 
my favorite uh, vampire movie of all time is the Swedish original of Let the Right One In. Uh, so I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's it's gorgeous and beautiful. I mean, and it's actually exactly what I think a vampire should be. And it actually does kind of capture more of the aesthetic, I guess, of the the pre-modern view of what a vampire is, which is basically um, a serial killer that is immortal. Okay. A horrifying ghoul that you if you're going to be friends with him or her you must also be a a sociopath or a psychopath i mean because how else would you get along yeah and i will say i think the modern sort of sexy vampire romantic hero vampire has gone a little too far like i we have not had just a straight up monster vampire like somebody who's horrific in a long time like the vampire the monster it's all tortured romantic hero now do you think it's do you think it's really that Anne rice set the tone in the 90s or do you think it was happening before that um i think it was happening before then i mean who was the uh what were the sexy dracula movies who was that it wasn't christopher lee i mean he was dracula but um frank langella was that who it was i don't remember I don't remember actor names very well. But I think there was a trend in like the 70s towards like Dracula as sexy vampire. Sure. And I think she definitely, you know, ran with that. And that was, it's just been a snowball effect. Like you had Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt as the sexy vampires, the sort of depressed, tortured. And I, I feel when we have Twilight and True Blood, they're similar in that the the downsides are are less bad than they used to be like in true blood you can have fake blood now that's that's the true blood you can have fake blood instead of human blood uh you can do most of the things a human being can do uh you can go outside for a little bit i think yeah but maybe you can have sex they have sex all the time yeah and i mean they can't reproduce i guess but they kind of can reproduce they have family relationships they can produce other vampires but I remember one of the things in the Anne Rice books is that they were like perfectly preserved dead bodies. Like they could not have sex. Yeah. Um, right. If they did anything to themselves, like they cut their hair, it would grow back almost instantly. So there is this downside in that they'd never change. Yeah. And I think that's, to me, I think that has to be a piece of, a really indelible piece of, of vampire lore. It's one of those things that when people do damage to it, I just, I can't get on board with it. I do think there's core narratives to the classic monsters, the classic werewolf, the classic vampire, the classic zombie. And you can mess with, I do think there are some fluid elements or things that people think, well, this should always be part of it. But sometimes it works to change it. I mean, I think of, in terms of zombies, when the 28 Days Later movie came out and they basically just said well what if zombies were really fast it was great hmm. i thought it was a great yeah permutation of of the of the lore but yeah making it so that vampires can basically go out, out out into the daylight anyway or that they don't have to drink blood anymore 
things like that. It's like, well, okay, is that still a vampire? Well, and they've gotten away from the idea that vampires are evil, especially in shows like True Blood, where vampirism is, I think it's just a straight up metaphor for homosexuality or other sexualities, other gender identities. Uh, Vampires are now the minority, the persecuted minority. And there's not the sense that they are aligned with the devil or that they're in any way evil. Right. But I think it would be great to do a whole season on people who have, like neo-paganism, uh, you know, Odinists, Jediism, John Oliver. Didn't John Oliver um, incorporate a church? I think he, made, he incorporated a church to make a point about uh, ta- tax-exempt status for nonprofits. This sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it would be fun to do all season on that. And of course the, the crown jewel of that, uh, season would be, uh, Scientology or would, (laughs) could be Scientology if we weren't afraid of getting, you know, sued and raped and murdered and (laughs) probably like our bodies already. Yeah. We probably will. Yeah. Just from saying this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like the, end of our bodies would be like we would be incorporated into the food for Tom Cruise's 60th birthday party. Is he that old? I don't know. I mean, I think in the future, I don't think he's 60 yet, but I think we'd be on the docket. I think it would be just in time. I think vampires lend themselves more to religion than maybe some other monsters, whatever we might feel about made up religions or, you know, uh, whatever nice way we have of saying that. You know, like religions based on popular culture or stories. Vampires lend themselves more to that than something like zombies or werewolves or, I don't know, any of the other universal classic monsters. Yeah, what are the other? Are we missing some? Well, you have your Frankenstein's monsters, you have your zombies, you have your werewolves, you have your mummies. Yeah. I mean, mummies would be inherently have some Egyptian religions surrounding them, but not necessarily adhering to that religion. Zombies, yeah. Well, I mean, mummy monster, not... Obviously, mummies, yes, they come from a certain religious practice, but the the movie version of mummies... Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Is basically... Yeah, zombies especially. I think the critique of consumerism is always so on the forefront, I think, of most zombie stuff that you know there's just no room for the religious critique and there's there is some i you know i watched walking dead which is another thing like sort of walking dead is so horrible it's the writing (laughs) is bad the acting is just terrible there's long like i i don't fast forward through any so show that i watch more than through walking dead (laughs) it's just like oh please but yeah there's some religious um, not just religious imagery, imagery, but I actually had a student do a paper a couple years ago. It taught a class on Revelation, and he actually compared uh, the Book of Revelation to three episodes in season two of Walking Dead. It was one of the best hmm. papers I read. It was really fun. It's kind of cool. But I, th- I hear what you're saying. Vampirism or vampires have had this religious overtone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's the idea that 
they can't what, look at crosses. Vampires can't look at crosses or a cross. A crucifix would provide you protection from a vampire. Yeah, right. Can they enter churches? Sometimes. In I think they, sometimes they can't eat, enter churches. They can't be on holy ground. They can't. They get burned by holy water. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the holy water. And I think I'm thinking, too, of, of modern explanations for why that is um part of the part of the package there was a terrible and yet wonderful movie that came out in the 90s called dracula 2000 i'm trying to think if it (laughs) (laughs) i think it was called dracula 2000 in that spoiler alert when did it come out well okay Chris, it came out in 2000. Yeah, it was called Dracula 2000. It came out in 2000. Um, and he's kind of the sexy vampire. But he um, he ends up being Judas. Like he's... Huh. And that's the... They explain that's why the silver... I think they tie that in. That's why he doesn't like silver. Okay. This 30 huh. pieces of silver. So yeah... There's there's one explanation. Another one I've seen is that was in um, they there was one a while back that was I thought really really a lot of hubris was called Bram Stoker's Dracula. Was, yeah, yeah was like I saw that one. Yeah, Gary yep. Oldman. Yeah, yeah, he was great because he was creepy. He was he was hmm. really gross, and you know Gary Oldman always becomes a completely different person for like pretty much any role. And then Anthony Hopkins was Van Helsing in that. Yeah. And I remember, I don't remember if that was good or bad. It was kind of a standard for Dracula movies in the nineties, but it was bad at the beginning. They actually show the part I liked that was really cool was they actually try, tried to tie in the idea that he was Vlad the Impaler that he was actually this, you know. Yeah, I remember and that. And there's this yeah. moment where he makes this oath that he's going to, I don't can't remember what the content of his oath, but he was pissed off because his, probably his wife died or something like that. And he takes his sword and there's this big Orthodox cross in his chamber of his castle and he stabs the middle of it and a bunch of blood starts pouring out. And he... Huh. fills up a goblet and drinks a bunch of the blood. Hmm. And that's just, you know, that's out of left field. Okay. Yeah, but that's my point with Gary Oldman's Bram Stoker's Dracula. They connect Dracula with Vlad the Impaler, and they explain that there was this curse, like he was cursed by God to become a vampire, or he cursed right. himself or something. But there's this supernatural christian explanation for it right he's an antichrist of sorts maybe not the antichrist it's it's tying into christian theology and same thing with dracula 2000 right he's judas he's the you know the i mean i guess not the opposite of jesus but it's connecting with that western christian narrative or theology or whatever a couple years ago they made a movie it's really interesting. I I can't remember the name of it, but it was this, it was a movie about the making of Nosferatu. Oh, it's that's a great movie. It's Shadow of the Vampire, I think. Yeah, that's right. Shadow of the Vampire. Willem Dafoe plays 
the vampire or the actor. I mean, he's sort of the actor who it's unclear whether he is a vampire or not. It's yeah, he's either a method actor or an actual vampire. I think it turns out he's actually a vampire who's pretending to be an actor. Uh, John Malkovich, too. Oh, is he the director? Yeah. I think Carrie Elwes is in it, too. That one g- gets into another vampire myth. The myths that uh, vampires cast no shadow. Oh, yeah. Another one that I remember is that, and I, I remember this from some book I read when I was a teen. It was like teen fiction, but vampire fiction, which I think is now as a 40-year-old man who is thinking, yeah, what do I want my kids to read when they're, you know, 12? I don't know if I want them to get into vampires. I mean, I realize vampires have gotten to be kind of a silly joke now. And there's Transylvania, the Hotel Transylvania movies, which I haven't seen any of them, but I, I know they're funny. I've seen all of them. And yeah, I watched them. For kids. My daughter, yeah. We don't think about, like, Count Chocula. I was thinking about this the other day. What does Count Chocula suck? Like, what does he drink? I mean... What is he a vampire for? Does he eat his own cereal? Or is he just the sponsor? I mean, is that just his... He's just getting... I guess I'd have... I mean... I'd have to see a commercial of him and see if he's ever taken a bite of his own cereal. Even if he did, though, that wouldn't be vampirism. That would just be eating something. Well, I mean, I, I can't think of any variations of the vampire myth where vampires can eat actual food. Yeah, they usually... They only can... I think it... Blood. Yeah, they throw up the food, usually, or something like that. Or they just don't eat it. Right, they're not interested. I mean, that's the other thing to me about the Count on Sesame Street. What does he drink? Does he drink Muppet blood? I mean, they don't have blood, do they? But it would just be yarn? Yeah, or fluff. Or does he feed on, psychically, the Muppeteer who's... Like, did they have to get a couple of guys? These, are the, to me, are the questions that I feel like we have to ask of these playful adaptations of vampires. And to me, once you start asking those questions, then you have to interrogate interrogate the romantic vampire. Then you have to say, well, what is romantic about this serial killing creature who literally drains people of their life? How's that sexy? I think it's the youth, the perpetual youth that's sexy about it. Uh, the freedom to travel wherever. Because if you're immortal, you can. There's less danger in traveling, I guess. Presumably, you've got an exquisite taste. Yeah, although they're always pretty, and dressed yeah. clothes. There's a guy named Jim Butcher, who writes this series about a wizard detective uh, named Dresden. They're called the Dresden Files, and he has a whole book about. He has a character in his books, who's a vampire. And he has different classes of vampires in his books. And this guy is a white vampire. And white vampires basically drain the life of people by having sex with them. Hmm. And isn't that just a, they, a succubus or an incubus? No, a succubus. Is it? Well, go on. Sorry. They, he might call them suck. They might call it. Yeah, the incubus is the man and then the succubus is the woman. Yeah. This one's a man. Although okay. I think there are women, white vampires, and yeah, they they're also they happen to be really attractive. Like this guy walks into the room and all the women like turn, and 
are immediately attracted to him. But on the inside, he's this horrific monster. Well, I think it can work in multiple ways. I think that's more of the the older Dracula style where there's something attractive about him, about the vampire who is sort of this other, because he's from the East, he's from Eastern Europe, um, this decadence, this Eastern European aristocrat, which is kind of attractive, this rich other, but it's also horrific and deadly, this person. This is somebody who's going to kill you, who, whose very existence is going to suck the life out of you. Yeah. So it's kind of appealing in one way, but it's totally objectionable in another way. And I think the modern sexy vampire, the angsty vampire, it's the ex- existential dilemma that this person's very existence is dependent upon doing something evil. And the person is always tortured by that. Because to not suck blood would be to commit suicide. But to continue to exist means to commit yourself to a life of murdering. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the classic uh, version of that, I think, is Louis from, from Anne Rice's novels and everything. Yeah, and the torture itself, the self-torturing is almost fetishized. So my source for this vampire stuff today is a book called The Vampire, A New History by Nick Groom. It was just published this year. And it's his history of vampires before Dracula was published. So Dracula was published in 1897, I believe. And that has since sort of dominated the vampire mythos since then. Everything is a response to Dracula. Everything is influenced by Dracula. Sure. He's, he's doing a history of what people were saying about vampires before then. But what has, how far back does he have to go? Not that far, actually. So there are antecedents, like ghosts, um, people, demons who suck blood, that go all the way back to the Bible. But the vampire, as we think of it, the sort of undead, embodied person who sucks blood and has to be uh, staked through the heart and beheaded and burned, that actually has a very specific birth date. Huh. Uh, he says it's 1725. Huh. And okay. his, his general thesis is that there are these you know, folklore antecedents, but the vampire, what makes it the vampire, this sort of physical thing that there's this proof for, the way you examine it, is this combination of Eastern European folklore with Enlightenment rationalism. Okay. So let me read a let me read a paragraph where he's describing this this first incident. Uh, in 1725, one Frombold, a medical officer in the Imperial Army, reported to his commanding officers in Vienna that Serbian Hajdukes had exhumed a staked corpse before cremating it. They claimed that the corpse had risen from the grave to strangle victims and infect them with a condition that caused death within 24 hours. In the Latin aside, in his report. Frombold called these creatures vampiri. On 21 July the same year, the Viennese newspaper carried this report naming the vampire in question as Peter Plogoyowitz, a local peasant. Once dead, Plogoyowitz had allegedly been responsible for throttling nine people in the space of eight days 
in the village of Kisolova in Serbia. Plokoyowitz may have been ithyphallic, thus posing a predatory sexual threat, as well as a paranormal vampirical threat. But most importantly, according to the common observation, he had sucked from the people killed by him. Plogoyoitz was one of the vampiri or bloodsuckers. Uh, having been exhumed and discovered to be a vampire, he was staked, whereupon fresh blood spurted from his pierced chest, as well as from his ears and mouth, before being incinerated. Nice. Uh, part of what he's getting at, Nick Groom, is the way people, like uh, philosophers and theologians, dealt with the supernatural and the folklore after the Enlightenment, trying to rationally explain things. And it wasn't as if theologians had to rationally explain everything, but there were some things they had to struggle to explain theologically. Like they wanted to explain these stories, but it also had to make sense theologically. So stories of ghosts were pretty easy for Protestants and Catholics because they could say, well, those are you know disembodied souls and they're either from heaven or from hell, from the Protestant angle, or Catholics could say, well, there's some sort of purgatory going on. But that was pretty easy to say, oh, well, we have this belief in the spiritual. Ghosts are just the spiritual. Sure. So we have- Whatever form. That's easy. Scripture and tradition backs us up. It's fine. Yeah. And it's just, it makes yeah. sense in our theology. But yeah. the idea of a vampire posed a problem theologically. Uh, can you guess why? Because what makes vampires different from ghosts is that they have bodies and they're evil. Uh, is that the reason? Well, w- why is that I mean, problematic? The, the fact you. that they have bodies and they're evil? Yeah. Is because, I would I would imagine, is because you don't want evil to be substantial. No. Would that, okay. No, I mean, yes, you don't want evil to be substantial. But if they're dead, if they're raised from the dead, that suggests that the devil is just as powerful as God. I see. Yes. So I, that was going to be my next question was, is there a, a belief in the account that you just read that this is going to be a being that would persist? Is there a belief in immortality, I guess? Well, this is the struggle. So this is why a lot of theologians, it's not until this 18th century that people really start talking about vampires a lot. And theologians are struggling with this. Like Protestants want to ignore it altogether because it's too material. Like Catholics sort of have a a stake in the material in a way that Protestants don't. So like Mm. Protestants are cool talking about ghosts and they kind of like the idea of ghosts because that's proof. It's proof in what we believe. Sure. To have a vampire, somebody who was dead and then brought back to life, says, well, either the devil is just as powerful as God, or this is some sort of natural creature, which doesn't seem to be the case. And it's it's this uh, evil. And in fact, some of the first theologians to really dig in on this, one of them was named Dom Augustine Calmet. He doesn't really have a firm conclusion because he wants to point out all the ways in which the vampire is sort of an inverse of saints, like the Catholic belief in incorruptibles in saints whose bodies um, after they die don't decay as a sign of their holiness. Hmm. Okay. He's saying now maybe this is, it's like the devil mocking that Catholic belief. Sure. He's good at mocking. 
Yeah, maybe it's just the appearance of incorruptibility of these undead things as as more of that mockery. Sure. But he, he is resistant to say it's actually a thing because if they actually exist, then that implies a sort of equal power. Hmm. But then a lot of the stuff that goes along with the vampires, that their bodies, it's, it's the inverse of saints not decaying. And the whole thing with blood, it's an inverse of communion. Like mm. Jesus and in the Eucharist, wine becomes blood. Whereas with vampires, blood becomes wine. Hmm. So I go to church with a lot of Greeks and they kind of have vampires. They have these things called uh, ricolacas and the people believed in these for a long time. And the Greeks have a habit of exhuming bodies anyway to see if there's, not just to see if there's evidence that your relative has turned into a vampire, but also they really like to see if someone is an incorruptible. Hmm. Um, But I think I remember that they pour wine over the body. If they think it's uh, of ricolacas, Ricolacas. Um, if they think it's a Ricolacas, they will pour wine on it. And then there's a priest there and the priest will read from the Bible. And then ironically, I think if the body hasn't decayed enough, they would suspect that there was a Ricolacas. It's kind of like you would have to decide, is this a vampire or a saint? So I kind of think there's this weird convergence I mean, I, I am seeing the this duality or a mirroring of the two two ideas, but there there might even also be some convergence. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it it does go back and forth. I mean, one of the things they mention, or not they, Nick Groom mentions, uh, is one of the defenses to sort of inoculate yourself against a vampire would be to, I think this is right, to eat bread that had soaked up the vampire's blood. Like you'd put the bread in the coffin to soak up the vampire's blood and eating that would be like an inoculation against the vampire. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like it's... to see the the scene. Like who has <laughs> to do it? Put this in here. Uh, <laughs> here you go. Oh, is that for me okay. or... No, I'm all right. How about no, this is gonna help you? Can, this is good. Can, yeah. Can that one be yours, and then maybe I'll take the next one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all gonna be. It's all gonna be like this. Yeah, oh. it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm all right. Yeah, I know. Um, that's that's really fucked up. Um, I'll, I will say, and that alone can that could be the whole thing that's strange about this this whole episode if we want it to be. Um, but well, I know. Think the, about the whole. Sorry. Go ahead. No, well, I was, I was going to say the idea of the vampire sucking blood and making you into a vampire by drinking your blood, it is the complete inverse of becoming part of the body of Christ by drinking Christ's blood. Hmm. Yeah. Like vampires infect you and then make you part of them. It's like parasite versus gift. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, though. I'm sorry I interrupted. Oh, I was going to say the Orthodox have, when they do communion, they have a big loaf of bread and they only they only make communion out of part of the loaf and then they cut up the rest of the loaf and uh it's called the endetheron which is like 
it means like instead of the gift. Um, so it's this thing that you, most people just get it. Like you take communion and then after that, you just take a couple of pieces of bread and just, you know, have a little snack after your, hmm. after the Eucharist. And I know like crosses, you know, there's lots of religious imagery that goes into Bram Stoker's portrayal of, of Dracula. But then I think the Andetheron is used kind of like garlic. Like people will take Andetheron from church and like put it around their house to ward off the Ricolacas. Hmm. I would be on board with that use of bread. I don't know if I'd be on board with... So I'm wondering if though, if they take blessed bread, is it the blessed bread from communion or is it just some priest I don't blessed? know. I think it's just bread. It's just regular bread. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Oh, but also the idea of you have to kill vampires like three different ways or the idea that, you know, they, they staked him through the heart and then they chopped his head off and then they burned him and then they scattered his ashes. Uh, that's how a lot of saints die too. Not that exact procedure, but- well, they tried to kill the saint this way and it didn't work. And then they tried to kill him this way and that also didn't work. And then finally, like it, they finally took, you know, when they chopped his head off. Yeah. Right. Or like, uh, Thecla, for example, she gets basically killed. I mean, she basically, she should be dead. Um, but she survives at the end and she's still called a martyr. Um, but yeah, she, yeah, that's a good point. Basically, the, the, the saints go through these harrowing ordeals, and it's really hard to kill a saint. But I think that's concern, that we have this undead thing walking around, something that's been raised from the dead, that's not good. I think that's interesting, that it, it's viewed as this anti-Christ, anti-saint, and that poses more of a theological conundrum, is... <clears throat> a big part of the concern. It's like, well, we can't believe in this because it, it messes with the system. Like we have this system. It's nice. God's the only thing that can raise people from the dead. We can get wishy-washy about Jesus raising Lazarus and a few other, you know, situations but like Jesus is unique. We have this nice system <laughs> and this is, this is messing with the system. Yeah. Well, I could see, yeah. I mean, lots of, lots of lore about Satanism and satanic cults and the worship of Satan and stuff like that is it's that same theme: the inversion of the inversion of the holy. That the profane is just the inversion of the holy. Uh, but yeah, I can see why they would say, well, but let's maybe not this much inversion. This is giving the devil too much power. And it's as long as it's just the the poor imitation, that would be fine. Like if, if vampires are corrupted in a way that a resurrected person like Christ is not, that would be acceptable, right? Because it's so uh, a failure. It's not the perfect re like resurrection from the dead. This is an interesting reaction to the the idea. I think you've hit the nail on the head that the strange part of this is the idea that we can't believe in this, even though by the standards of whatever century we're in late medieval Christian West, um, 
we have enough evidence that vampires exist, but we just can't believe it because it would be too much of a threat to the theological system that we adhere to currently. Well, and what it reminded me of the most, I mean, I think we should apply it to the other things we talked about earlier, but it reminded me of Twilight. Now, granted, I've only seen the first movie and I haven't read any of the books, but it seems to me that in those books, the idea of the vampire is representing this evangelical distrust of sexuality. Well, more precisely, the the Mormon distrust of sexuality because it's really sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, the, it's the a Mormon distrust, sure. But that's that's what he that's what his vampirism uh, represents. She all the ways she's fearful of him would be correct. Like he could prey on her, he could overpower her. He is, you know, the man who just wants sex. But he, what makes him attractive is that he has chosen not to give in to any of those things. But everybody who's not him or of his, of his belief or mindset possesses all of those things that she is right to be afraid of and reject. And that the reader is right to be afraid of and reject. Like most vampires would just, um, are, those, are those monsters that we all, the readers all think they are. And he is special, which makes it even better. Yeah, it's um, supposed to be titillating, I think. And it, gets at the same it, it's it's complex in the same way maybe not in the same way as Anne Rice's character of Louie it's this idea of the, the the tragic vampire is is just you know there's something so much more interesting about that well I think even then it's the thing that we reject I mean those books those vampires the Anne Rice vampires and the True Blood vampires are very sexual vampires. Yeah. Um, and especially for, yeah, but especially for Anne Rice, very homoerotic. Sure. For Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I, I wonder, I mean, did those books come out in the 70s or the 80s? The Anne Rice books? Yeah. I think they came out in the early 90s. I, I wonder sh- if there's some sense of, I think it was earlier than that. I bet oh, they was were it? earlier. Maybe it was the 80s. Um I wonder if there's some intended commentary on HIV or AIDS. Because we think, you know, what's attractive about them is the sexuality, the un, unbridled sexuality. Unbridled in the sense of there's no, uh, no holding back. What's the word I'm looking for? Unrestrained? Sure. Yeah. And yet that is something that people are afraid of when it comes to sexuality. Not wrongly, but uh, that that aspect, like the the just the id the unrestrained id sure it is sort of the vampire even the tragic vampires represent just all the the baser instincts that we all kind of want to give in to all the time and we find it attractive that they do but we all it's also frightening that they do the Anne rice cosmology the way she conceives of vampires has gone together with a few other modern iterations There's a video game series that came out in the 90s. And I actually played it because I was a little little nerd um, playing video games. It's called Vampire the Masquerade. And Hmm. um, a lot of the way that people who say that they adhere to a modern vampire culture or modern vampire religion, 
they have taken elements from those. And so people who call themselves vampires um, will talk about being able to drain people's energy psychically, even without the consent of the, of the person. Or they'll talk about being able to drain it sexually, which, you know, I would think remained, would remain to be seen with most people that maybe I just have a lot of stereotypes in my head, but the kind of guy that is a vampire um, and goes around telling people he's a vampire. I don't mm. see that guy getting laid a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's possible, but well, I feel like we're, we've, shall I say, drained <laughs> this subject. Uh, I mean, we could, <laughs> yeah, I think there's more to say, but. Well, closing, closing thoughts. On vampires? Yeah. I think it's actually, the more I looked into it, the more I, I think there is to the way vampires are presented in modern media. Like, I think there's more depth to them. However, I don't think that's, I don't want to give credit to people who make crappy vampire shows. I think it's, I think it's more baked into the culture. And it touched on such a basic thing, this anti-saint, anti-Christ sort of inverse uh, that that's that that's still at work like the inverse of what the way we think things should be yeah and i think uh with what you brought to the podcast today i think it's safe to say that the religious foundations or the religious aspects to the the proto-myth that Bram stoker drew on you know Bram stoker wasn't adding um, Christian elements into this entirely new production. He was drawing on stuff and ways of thinking about vampirism that already existed. And I mean, I, I, I think that's makes sense, right? Well, I think also what this is showing me, this book by Nick Room, is that vampires are not that old of a a monster like in terms yeah. of this way we have of talking about them there were antecedents that go back you know years and years and years but they're pretty new and it seems like when they were discovered so to speak it was religious from the very beginning i mean we could say we could say folklore is always religious but it seems like this the way we talk about vampires was grounded very early on with this sort of conjunction of folk and theological and rationalist thinking. In a way that all of our go-to monsters that are so popular in American culture now, zombies, werewolves, um, uh, well, zombies and werewolves, and, you know, of course there's religious aspects to the portrayal, the original portrayal of Frankenstein, but, you know, zombies... Um, you know, there's nothing particular, there, there's not really any religious imagery with that. And werewolves, sometimes you get that, but, but not nearly as much as vampires. Yeah. They're distinctively Christian. So this idea of, um, the rationalism, I haven't read the whole book, 
but I wonder if that's one of the reasons there's always rules associated with vampires. Like ghost, ghost stories, there's always rules associated with ghosts. It's not like, well, a ghost can't go out during the day or a ghost has to do this. Uh, it just depends on the, the story. Ghosts can kind of be or do whatever. But vampires always have some rules associated with them. Like they can't be out of day. This is the only way you can kill them. If you throw like rice on the ground, they have to count every grain. Maybe that's Japanese. No, vampires. I think that's. I. There's some. There's some Asian version of. They a have to count that, every grain. Maybe that's. Yeah. No, I think that's. I don't know. But I think that's got a Christian symbolism to it. I can't remember what it is, but I thought that came. I thought that went back to a, a Christian symbol, for some reason. Uh, yeah, but like you, you know, you, they can't come in your house unless you invite them. And even when they're presented now, like they always have these rules associated with them. I wonder if that's that's what it is. It's this rationalist way of engaging it. Like, oh, well, let's let's explain it. Or maybe it's just a way of of bounding, you know, what could be a metaphor for, you know, unbridled the unbridled id, as you were talking about earlier. Then that that there are with even within the 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 creature itself, there are natural constraints, and that's maybe the saving. The, the saving grace of it is that, well, yeah, here's this horrific cr- creature, but if you've got enough, you know, crosses and garlic and, and, and dither on, then you should be fine. It's an interesting question. Anyway, um, before we sign off though, I, I do just want to do like one thing if I can. Sure. Bleh. <laughs> I just I just really wanted to do that the whole time. No, you should have sprinkled that in. I should have. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I did well, just just like copy that. Yeah, I will and, and I'll just yep. cut it in. It'll just, just be occasionally. Yep. All over the whole place. Yep. It'll be hard. This will be a hard <laughs> one to listen to, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta make it difficult on the listener. Yeah. 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 Just really just offensive. Yep. Not in a vulgar way, just in, in just to their ears. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We want to call the the lazy listeners. So. Oh, yeah. 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 Here ends the podcast of Strange Religion. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Religio Aliena. And you can find us on Facebook at Strange Religion Podcast. Uh, we're happy to always get new subscribers and uh, new listeners and strangers as I have begun referring to uh, all seven of you. Um, <laughs> strangers, we need your help. We want to spread the gospel of strange religion. So if you have friends who are uh, not doing as well uh, at work because they've been listening to so many podcasts, that's the sort of person we want um, we want a serial <laughs> podcast listener because we understand we can't compete with this American life and, and, uh, and serial and, um, you know, no. all the other ones, but we'll, we're really insubstantial. This is the kind of thing you could listen to at work and really not be too bothered. You know, It's true. We're something to tune out, but we're happy to yeah. come for, um, you know, for seconds. If you're coming for seconds. <laughs> so uh, please tell your friends, make more strangers, 
And be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and try and leave us a positive review on, on iTunes. We need your help and support to continue. Join us again next week for another edition of Strange Religion. And until then, keep the faith and keep it strange. And now I approach the altar. I know my God will see the good in me. It is my destiny. Strange.